Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. If you wanted a quiet end to the year, I'm afraid you are not getting one. Joining us to discuss a legend of Wall Street, Abby Joseph Cohen, Goldman Sachs Advisory Director and Senior Investment Strategist. And she joins us now. Good morning to you, Abby. Have we seen, have we already seen the top of this bull market? Um, I think that we certainly um, reached stretched valuations uh, in September. You know, based upon the arithmetic of earnings and economic growth and interest rates, we thought 2850 for the S&P 500 was fair value. We got a little bit higher, but we are, of course, having great difficulty holding that level. We've now moved down to the low ends of uh, valuation ranges um, for all the obvious reasons. There's such uncertainty about the fundamental outlook and risk tolerance, perhaps most importantly, has changed. It's not that the arithmetic of earnings expectations or economic forecast have changed very much in recent weeks. What has changed is the perception of how willing investors are to ride out this confusion about what's happening in Washington and, of course, the deceleration we're seeing in other economies around the world. So, Abby, I've had conversations about this through the week. The only certainty as we go into 2019 is uncertainty. And as you touch on, it's the sentiment issue that really gets my attention. Sentiment appears to be totally battered. And I'm trying to understand where the comfort comes from. Is it the earnings? Will it be the data? Because even on a morning like this morning, when the Chinese come out and promise more tax cuts and signal looser monetary policy, this market, Abby, still can't catch a bid. Um, One of the issues, of course, is that we're dealing with this major change um, with regard to risk tolerance, uh, but it is being fueled and exacerbated by many of the decisions underway in Washington. And I'm not talking about the Fed. I'm talking about the confusion having to do with government shutdown. I'm talking about the confusion um, in the government, in the uh, president's cabinet, and so on. And perhaps most importantly for investors, looking at economic policy, where the recognition is that that big fiscal stimulus through the tax cut really was perhaps only a sugar high. Um, And trade policy is really, uh, at this point, quite erratic. And I think that's what investors are concerned about. They're nervous that the arithmetic assumptions that they put into their models may be tossed up in the air, add that to this change in risk tolerance. And I think you see the ugly mix that uh, we're now in. If you're just joining us, John Farrow and Tom Keene with Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs. We welcome all of you across this nation and worldwide. Abby, there is a thing called standard deviations, which is the price movement of gold is different than the price movement of General Electric is different than the price movement of sterling. I've noticed high yield is out to 3.8 standard deviations, price down, yield up. How do you define catharsis or panic in the market? Do you do it quantitatively or do you look at crystals and pyramids down at Goldman Sachs until you see it behaviorally? (laughs) I, I've, I've always been interested in crystallography, Tom. I didn't know that you were aware of that. 
Um, clearly, we are looking at things like um, standard deviation, but we always begin with the fundamentals and the valuations. And I hope I've been very clear every time I've spoken with you uh, for more than the past two years that fixed income securities uh, writ large were overpriced. Um, we saw that in treasuries that we thought were priced too low. Clearly, some of uh, Chairman Powell's comments uh, have indicated that, where they feel they're just trying to get back to normal with regard to government uh, yields. Uh, but the gaps, the yield spreads have been so narrow um, yeah. in corporate securities. And also, it's been so narrow uh, in term securities um, that this was a mispricing in the fixed income market. Okay. So I think one of the things that happens when people get nervous is they take a look around and they said, we really have to price for the fundamentals. Okay, you're on the Y. This is a problem, John. Abby Joseph Cohen's on the Y axis. We're going to drag her down on a Friday to an X axis analysis. Abby, this is becoming chronic. We've had negative interest rates chronically forever. I spoke to Secretary Geithner about this 11 years ago. What, how do you perceive the x-axis into 2019, this chronic nature of our fixed income distortions? Much of the distortion, Tom, as you've already discussed previously, relates to not just the U.S., but to what's going on in other countries. Um, if you look at interest rates, say two-year government uh, bonds for countries around the world, more than half of those developed countries have negative yields. And that, of course, drags down the yield on Treasury securities, because even if our mathematicians at Goldman Sachs say the yield on a U.S. government bond should be 50 basis points higher or 75 or whatever it might be based upon the term structure. There is international demand coming from other countries where those yields are dramatically lower. Uh, so we are in a world where there has been mispricing uh, in fixed income, and that is uh, part of the dilemma uh, that we're now facing. We're also in a world, seemingly, Abby, where our tolerance for higher rates has diminished markedly over the last 10 years. Leverage is up, debt levels are up, and our tolerance is down a lot. Abby, why every time we get to a 1% real yield in treasuries, this market just craters? Why? What's fascinating is that the sensitivity is much more in markets than it is in the economy. Um, and, and I think that uh, when the Fed makes decisions, they're thinking about just how sensitive, um, interest rate sensitive sectors will be um, in the real economy uh, to the rise in interest rates. But you're right, markets are responding in a very dramatic way. I also think that we may uh, be overly concerned about corporate debt. Um, we see so many corporations that are well run, that are successful, have high returns on equity borrowing. Uh, and they're borrowing because they've been taking advantage of these extraordinarily low interest rates. You know, I sort of wonder why the Treasury didn't borrow for 50 years out. Um, when well, why not, Peter Fisher? Well, well, that, well, let me interrupt. That's a critical statement. Why can't we extend duration? Or do we have such a large deficit now and chronically down the road that we can't even get out to 10, 20, 30 years? 
I think that there has been this uh, uh, tendency at the Treasury uh, to say, look, we're going to continue to do this sort of in a, a laddered function. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that has been the approach. That's been the cash management approach um, really for years and years. But corporations who have, shall we say, less uh, pressure, people looking over their shoulders, et cetera, um, have been going extremely long. And I think that's one of well, the reasons the debt levels are so okay. high. Where I am concerned are companies that have raised their debt levels so that they could bolster their dividend payouts. That, to me, is a no-win game. Well, good morning to all at General Electric this morning. Oh, no, I didn't mean to say that. Abby Joseph Cohen with us. Uh, with us right now, William Lee of the Milken Institute for years at the International Monetary Fund and at Citigroup. And, uh, Bill Lee, we look at the American economy. We see some revisions, but we see some negatives on the screen for durable goods and all. What is the animal spirit of business right now? You know, it's been made even worse. Uh, where It had this real jolt of great optimism when Trump was elected. We had this big jolt of expectations for investment coming in. And we see from these data that the the, the the uncertainty caused by the trade, uh, uh, confrontations with China, the unknowns about how China's going to react, is causing everyone in the business world to say, let's pause. Let's not do our investment plans. So all that tailwind that we got is now being cut off by these headwinds of uncertainty caused by the trade stuff. And, and I, that's really unfortunate because what we were hoping for was that this investment would really lead to a compositional change in GDP to give us the productivity gains that would allow us to grow at a fast pace without inflation. I think we just got some really constructive news from China overnight, Bill. I don't want to let price set narrative too much. The idea that the policymakers are looking at supporting the economy a little bit more, cutting taxes, the idea that monetary policy shifts away from neutral and maybe towards an easing bias. This is an important development, I think, Bill. Do you share that view? John, that, that's absolutely the, the, the one uh, hope that we have that's blowing the wind is that China is hurting more than we are from all this trade confrontation. And China, I think, is ready to deal. And whether they're really ready to deal in a structural basis or it's just more rhetoric, that's the big unknown. And until that unknown is cleared up, I think American businesses yeah, are not going to be investing. I have real trouble with the idea that we're going to be better because they're going to be worser. <laughs> to borrow, you know, a sophisticated phrase for a guy like you. I, I, I mean, basically what you're painting is a global slowdown, right? Oh, there's no question there's a global slowdown. It's whether we can come out of that slowdown or not. And China, because it's hurting, okay. they are more willing to deal at the table okay. than they were six months ago. On the edge of surveillance viral and break-exclusive is William Lee speaking an hour ago, calling Chairman Powell's performance pathetic. Is it pathetic because even if he raised rates, he didn't color? A global slowdown? Well, you know, the, the FOMC instructions to the chairman, right, it was clear from the statement, we're watching the world because of the global uncertainty, and we are lowering all of our forecasts of GDP and growth. How the hell did we go from there to we're on autopilot with a balance sheet, and we are looking to models to base our analysis from a guy who denied models at Jackson Hole? <laughs> this is a weird message that, I have that to came say, out, and, 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 I, and the markets punished them for the doing of bad messaging. You know what, Bill, I'm totally with you. I, I think yeah. the chairman had an absolute nightmare in that news conference. He was asked two really simple questions. You're forecasting another undershoot for inflation next year. Why are you raising interest rates? 
gave a terrible answer. Gina Smilik, Bloomberg's very own, one of our finest reporters, oh, also at the news conference, followed all, up. It was all asymmetry. Binion and Applebaum asked the question you're talking about. If it's a symmetrical and target, came just right back. If it's a symmetrical target, why aren't you allowing for okay. a small overshoot after years of undershooting it? And it doesn't folks, have an answer, Bill. And now, folks, your Friday... All you, all oh, go ahead, Bill, was, please. All, we, all you have to do is say, but we are pausing. We're seeing the data is causing us to lower the trajectory of interest rates, and we're slowing down the number of increases that we think is appropriate. Bingo, that would have done it. But no, he said the balance sheet's on, on, on okay. autopilot. Friday Clinic, William Lee. What do they mean by asymmetry? You know, the, the, they have yet to define that. And Thank Dan you. Fisher, when he was there, was trying to define a better communications for what the goals were. I don't think he did the job, and now it's up to Rich. And I hope Rich is going to do a better job of becoming be from PIMCO and the, not only a great academic career, but also a, a markets career. He's got to have a better sense of what has to be communicated about the nature of symmetry. Bill's nailed it. Vice Chairman Clarida has done a much better job communicating to this market than the chairman himself has, Tom. And yeah, it's I'll been a real problem. Yes, Look, if you change your that. view on what the chairman is saying three times in a space of two months to go from hawkish to dovish okay. to totally confused, then the problems but with the chairman's I, communication. I got to get this in. For the, the vice chairman from the University of DSGE, fine. What's the symmetry asymmetry? Is it inflation? Is it jobs? Is it output? You know, what are they having an egg salad sandwich? What's the symmetry asymmetry debate? I don't want to put words in Rich's mouth, but I'm guessing it kind of smells and looks like nominal GDP targeting, um, oh. because that's that's the kind of place where you can get symmetry, but at the same time get the looseness and 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 uh, yeah. discretion you need to be able to put policy in place. Oh, that is controversial. William Lee will be joining us here in a week or two, and we'll continue this discussion. This was good symmetry. fun. John Hudak with us with Brookings. John, a single sentence from your uh, note. The unstable behavior in erratic decision-making is likely the biggest D.C.-based issue to cause rockiness in markets in 2019, next year. That was penned by Brookings Quill, dipped in ink, before the Mattis resignation. Things changed yesterday, didn't they? Oh, things definitely changed yesterday, although the Mattis resignation is certainly connected to that type of unstable uh, behavior and erratic decision-making I'm talking about. Uh, his resignation came in part uh, because of the way that the president has been treating allies, his decision-making on Syria and now possibly Afghanistan. And the president needs to recognize that these types of behaviors have ripple effects beyond just the one item he's talking about in that yeah. moment. And it's a real problem for markets. One of your great expertise is the dialogue between institutions in Washington. Explain the ballet between the Pentagon and the Senate. You know, the Pentagon and the Senate have typically a very effective working relationship. Uh, these are two institutions that play extraordinary roles, uh, not just in, in foreign policy, uh, but in keeping really the entire administration on the same page in a variety of areas. The Defense Department touches a lot more than just the military. It touches issues around climate change and energy and a variety of topics. And 
oftentimes the Senate and the Pentagon are on the same page, whether they like yeah. to admit that or not. And I think we saw yesterday a, a, a Secretary of Defense stepping away and the Senate being shocked and really throwing their hands up in frustration at the president. And, you know, folks, as you know, when I get bored, I either look at Red Sox hot stove league baseball or I read the Congressional Budget Office. And John Hudak, there it was, a white paper, if you will, from the Congressional Budget Office, the cost of replacing today's Air Force fleet. Now, that's center tendency, General Mattis. I get that. Those dialogues don't end with a shock resignation. But what kind of Secretary of Defense are we going to have that could drive forward the day-to-day mundane discussion of billions of dollars of budgetary decision? Well, that's a great question. The president has a variety of choices, not just in terms of individuals, but sort of profiles of individuals. He could ask a current or a former senator. He could ask another general. Uh, But it, it appears what this president wants is a sycophant and not a bureaucrat. And that's a real problem. A yes man in charge of the Defense Department is a recipe for disaster, not just for the president's agenda, but for our military as well. I mean, the first I want to read this first paragraph in whole. It's a little nerdy, but folks, this is the real world. The U.S. Air Force has about 5,600 aircraft, which range in age from just delivered to 60, 60 years old. Many of those aircraft, including the costly to replace F-16, F-15, F-15E, C-130, and B-1B bombers are nearing the end of their service life. Do you think that this president understands that there's a business to our military that has to be done day to day? Or is he just looking at whatever the, the latest debate is on Syria? Yeah, I don't think the president understands that there's a, a business um, side yeah. to our military. A bureaucracy. If he was invested in it, he would be, but he's not. And it's a real problem. You know, it's, and it's not just our Air Force. Our Navy, we have ships that need to be sure. um, replaced or repaired. There are enormous parts of our military that need resupply or need to be transformed for uh, a modern military in a, in a modern world stage. And the president is uh, behaving behaving in ways that is turning away the best people equipped to help advance those interests. So how does this work out? Am I right? I believe my colleague John Farrell mentioned this, knowing more about American civics than I do. The Secretary of Defense has to be confirmed, right? Yes, he has to be confirmed by the Senate. Yeah, he or she has to be confirmed. Do you anticipate a brawl there, or are they just like, let's get a warm body and let's go? You know, typically the defense secretary is uh, a position that ends up not being terribly confrontational with the Senate, in part because the president and the Senate have a conversation about this. Um, But I think uh, what was most uh, surprising yesterday in a day full of surprises was Mitch McConnell's response to the Mattis resignation. He essentially threw down uh, a red line and said, you are going to pick someone who thinks like Jim Mattis and not someone who thinks like you. And I think it was a subtle threat to the White House that the confirmation is not just going to be automatic. Yeah. That the Senate, especially Republicans in the Senate, are going to look hard at what type of person the president sends them. Thank you, uh, Anna Edgerton in Washington, for her comments on that uh, before. Let us talk, pray tell, within this news flow about 
the shutdown. I mean, I guess there's a shutdown and the media covers it. And there's a there's probably going to be a countdown clock at 1122. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess it's Friday night into Saturday. Tonight. Into, oh, I see one. CNN. I'm looking here in our studios, uh, folks, and I'm going to pick on CNN. Shutdown countdown. 15 <laughs> hours, 6 minutes, 21 seconds. What are we counting down to? Uh, so what we're counting down to is appropriations running out for a group of federal uh, agencies and departments. That includes the Department of Justice, the State Department, Homeland Security, um, Agriculture, Treasury. Um, some of the government has been funded into next year, um, but there remain outstanding appropriations bills that yeah. have not. So do they and not so come into it, office? They don't come into office Monday? Yeah, so actually the president has, uh, by executive order, um, signed everyone to have Monday off. Um, of course, Monday would have been paid for those employees. John, are we doing that at Bloomberg funded. here? Did, did you see a memo come in from Al from New Jersey? I will not be here. For it's one. an executive order? My shutdown begins at uh, 12 noon Oh, today. very good. John Hudeck and I will be working on Monday. So really, they shut exactly. down Washington on Monday, right? Yeah, Monday will be shut down. Tuesday is Christmas, and so uh, really? but that Monday will be an unpaid holiday. Um, uh, so so will <clears throat> Tuesday, um, and then every day after that until Congress passes something, the president will sign. Federal oh. employees, at least in those departments, will not come in okay. to work, and they will not be paid. Tell me, okay, you sound like you're in the media, John. They're not going to be paid, but when they agree to agree again forward, they make up the pay, right? Uh, so that is Congress's discretion to do that. It's not a requirement. Congress has always done that. In the yeah, past. okay. Uh, but, but it's not a requirement. But that said, you're also not getting a paycheck during that time. Oh, yeah. And I so don't if, light if you have yeah. rent coming due, yeah. Yeah. no paycheck is coming in. Yeah, it, it, this has become a common feature. I mean, in our youth, this was a rare, rare discussion. But the president's really uh, changed that dialogue, hasn't he? Uh, he absolutely has. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's flown under the radar this week um, is that there was actually quite a bit of cooperation between Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi about a path forward. And it was the president and the Freedom Caucus who blew that up. I yeah. mean, how often is Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell on the same page on a big budget decision um, but they were here and they were ready to move forward uh, with appropriations through february and the president um, well, changed that overnight one final question then i want to go into february into march into april when the red sox uh, redo their world series uh, new season <coughs> if you will john is this going to be legislative versus trump i mean you mentioned the cooperation of republicans and democrats is that the new theme for next year you know, I don't think so. I think there's still going to be a lot of partisan gridlock on Capitol Hill on a variety of issues. But there is a sort of uh, opening, I think, for members of Congress to start to recognize that they are the adults in the room, that it is incumbent upon them as a separate branch yeah. of government, a co-equal branch, to be the ones who babysit the president. Um, for, for a long time, Republicans in Congress and Democrats, too, sort of delegated that to some of the cabinet. But those cabinet members are gone now, or they're going yeah. to be gone soon. And I think Congress really needs, they're at a crossroads where they need to think about what kind of role they're going to play, or whether they're going to abdicate that kind of authority. John Hudeck, thank you so much. What a terrific briefing. He is with uh, Brookings and their governance uh, study.
Steve Gallo joins us. Stephen Gallo uh, with BMO Capital uh, Markets. Steve, what's your call to the dollar? Let's get that out of the way. Is there ambiguity here? Are you going outlier dollar strength or do you go dollar weakness? Is dollar strength uh, really an outlier view right now? We we um, that's a question, I guess. The the um, the case is that uh, we started to we started to make a case for a stronger dollar around mid year. Uh, at the time, I think it was out of consensus. But now, given the global backdrop, even though the Fed is turning a little bit more cautious, the global backdrop suggests that we're still going to we're still very yeah. much likely to get another leg up higher in the dollar in the first half of the year. I would say that the two biggest risks to that call, although we we don't really see them uh, materializing anytime soon. The two biggest risks to that call would be a significant mammoth uh, stimulus package from China uh, or a quick resolution of the of the U.S.-China trade impasse. Um, we don't think those things will happen anytime soon or or at all, indeed. So, what do you? Th- how are all these the, the craziness we're seeing globally in the geopolitical realm? Whether it's Brexit, whether it's the China you mentioned, whether it's potential U.S. government shutdown. How do you and your clients kind of? factor that into your assessment of kind of where you think uh, various currencies are going? Well, unfortunately, from the investor community, I mean, most of the FX manager return indices that I look at, they suggest that unlevered and levered uh, FX specialty investors are, are long the dollar, but they got into that those positions that trade pretty late in the cycle. Um, and with positioning holding back further gains in the dollar right now, it, it, it's still been a, a tough year for, for FX investors. Um, but look, I mean, in this environment when, like as you say, ge- geopolitical risks are very elevated, uh, and also now it seems economic risks uh, at the global level are becoming um, um, more realized or more palpable, the only game in down is, is the dollar. It, it has natural safe haven attributes. We could debate over the next three to five years if it will retain those safe haven attributes, but right now in the short run it has safe haven attributes, and it also pays decent carry. It's a no-brainer. Um, so the the intensification of geopolitical and economic risks mm-hmm. that we see materializing in the first half of the year suggests to us there will be another leg higher in the dollar. But by around mid-year, right. we're expecting that, okay. that dollar strength to break a little bit. Is the leg higher in the dollar against everyone, or is it partitioned, EM, uh, G7, whatever? I, I would say most of G10, but uh, EM, you know, you have to you have to pick. Um, you have to make your selections wisely. There will be outperformers and, and underperformers. Um, the, 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 the reason is going into 2019, we have already seen a very significant um, about face in, in capital outflows from EM. This was a story for a large portion of 2018. Yeah. So those flows are very mature. At the beginning of Q4, we were actually starting to see flows return to some EM currencies. Obviously, that stopped dead in its tracks now in recent weeks, given the financial term market turmoil we've seen, but but capital outflows from many EMs, uh, they're pretty well advanced at this stage. So you're going to have to pick and choose wisely. Uh, What I would say, a big big theme for the U.S. dollar in the first few months of the year, one reason why we don't see the dollar uh, turning and heading south significantly, is we expect more weakness in the RMB. The main point that I would make here is that this depreciation cycle, which has been organized by the PBOC, has not coincided with the same type of pernicious net capital outflows we saw in 2015, 2016. So that gives them confidence that they can allow their currency to behave like a normal G10 free-floating currency and and weaken as fundamentals shift to the downside. Okay, Stephen Gallo, thank you so much with BMO Capital.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.